especially now, Lord God, we, we want to hear from you. May your spirit continue to work in our hearts and our minds and draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 through 9 together and then we'll, we'll get into it. Paul, bringing this to a conclusion, says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintich to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So uh, just bringing us back to where we were and where we're coming from. Again, the challenge last week, kind of the, the central uh, conversation last week was to press on. Press on for what? Towards the goal, the prize, the upward call of, of Christ, right? That's kind of what we're, we're striving for. We had a lot of conversation about athletics and teamwork and unity and, and all those things last week. So that's kind of where we're coming from. So today what Paul begins to do as he brings his letter to a close to the church in, in Philippi is he reiterates a lot of what he had just talked about with them or to them and brings it all to a, to a conclusion. So in a, in a true teacher-like fashion, uh, he repeats himself, which is good. You know, we were just talking about that a little bit ago. That, that repetition of, of words and, and, and context is, is very, very good for the church to understand and to hear. So that's kind of where he picks up tonight. So in verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I long or excuse me, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, uh, therefore. So this is what he's saying. What Paul is doing is, one, he's making a connection to where he started this letter. So what we have to do is we have to go back to verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 29. So in chapter 1, verse 29, Paul started his letter with that commendation. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. So if you remember that conversation some seven weeks ago, we were talking about standing firm, striving side by side, that we are participants together in this uh, life in Christ, uh, participants together to uh, pursue Christ and to pursue his righteousness, but also to advance the gospel in, in all that we do. So he's bringing them right back, to, right back to that idea of standing firm. So he's making that connection and he's providing that bookend of where he started and, and where he's going to bring it to a close. But what you can see here is that again, where we started, he reiterates his love, uh, unwavering love for the church. Look at how he defines the church in Philippi. He calls them brothers and sisters. 
those who he loves, those who he longs for. They're his joy, his crown. And then he finishes in verse one by saying, my beloved. So you just really see that passion and joy and love that Paul has for the church in Philippi. So remember, as we bring this to a close tonight and next week, that idea of uh, striving together for the gospel, this letter of encouragement should be a strong letter of encouragement to us in all that we're doing. Again, the main theme and idea of this book and this letter written to the church back then is for us today to continue to stand firm, continue to move forward, and no matter what in any circumstance that you may find yourself in or what is going on around you or around us, in that, in all of that, we can find joy, joy in God. So bringing that to memory again. So let's move on, get into verses two and three. So here Paul does something very interesting. He calls out a couple ladies in the church that are not agreeing with one another. We don't know what's happening. We wish we did <laughs> almost back then. What were they arguing about? What were they in a disagreement about? Uh, but I, I like to believe that it probably was uh, very similar to a lot of the things that we today were disagreeing about. But uh, regardless of what uh, Euodia and Sintich, or however you say her, that name, uh, what they were disagreeing about, Paul's encouragement is you have to come together. What has he been talking about throughout this whole letter? Unity, right? Purity. Uh, being wary of those that are bringing a false gospel, those that might entreat them to walk away from the faith, those that are enemies of the cross, as we talked about a little bit ago. So if the church is not remaining unified or striving for that unity, then any semblance of that, Paul is calling them out. So to call them out by name, but as you can see, he does that in, in love. So if there is any time uh, where division, disagreement, bickering, gossiping, uh, anything else, divisiveness is, is going to work its way into our life. Isn't that time now? A time of uh, social unrest, a time of virus, a time of panic, a time of fear, a time of all the talking heads about what to believe about this or that or, or what to do or what we can't do. Uh, all the economic restrictions or all the, the politics that are happening now because we're entering a, a, a new political election year, election cycle. I mean, if there is any time that the enemy is going to work his hardest to bring division in the church, for us now, that's the time. It's now and it's happening. I mean, I don't know if you feel like you can agree with that or not, uh, but it's, it's going on, especially in the church. You know, it's happening in the church. You look at all the conversations about... Uh, to meet or not to meet or what laws do we obey or what laws do we disobey or or where does our submissiveness stop when it comes to our governors or our uh, county or city officials and, and everything that they're doing, you know, and you've heard that back and forth and just that you, you're seeing the church butt heads. At least I've seen it. I'm following a lot of churches and a lot of pastors and uh, on both sides of the spectrum and, and there's a, a lot of passive aggressive conversation going on within the church about who's right, who's wrong, who's doing the right thing and who's not doing the right thing. You know, it's, it's, it's discouraging. It really is to, to see all this going on. But Paul is speaking, saying, I need somebody. And, and, and he kind of calls out this gentleman, Clement, and he calls him out saying, I need you to get them to agree, but not just to agree, but to agree in the Lord. And I think that's the big word that we need to pull from this, this passage right here. That we're all under the Lordship of Christ. So no matter what happens, 
if we disagree on how things are operating in the church or who's doing this or who's doing that or whatever might be going on, the fact of the matter is, and I think we can all agree to this, that we're not always going to agree. (laughs) I think we can agree to that. We're not going to agree 100% all the time on everything that happens within this community. It's never going to happen. We're too human. (laughs) But what can happen is we can achieve unity. We may not fully agree on everything, but we can agree on one thing, which is unity. So even in our disagreements, there can be unity because if we we step back and we understand whose authority we fall under, then that's what unifies us, you know, no matter what may be going on. So the I'm going to ask a lot of questions as we kind of go through our passage tonight. And the first question I want to ask is, how is this possible? How can we be in disagreement on things and yet ultimately come to unity on what it is that we're doing, the ministries that we're involved in, how we're reaching our community, and the list goes on. And and again, I, I know I kind of just gave one general overarching answer, but I want us to think practically. I think we might all agree, at least those of us here involved in this can agree that we're under the Lordship of Christ, but how do we make that practical? How do we bring that into the real, you know, of of disagreeing on certain things and yet finding unity and accomplishing what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be as the church? So if I can give you one more answer, but I want you to think practically about that is again, we're going to go right back to Paul reiterating his desire for the church. And that's in Philippians chapter two. Verses three and four. One of the answers is do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Isn't that the call? Does that itself provide unity? Let us not look out to our own interests, but also the interests of others. You know, so there's an overarching idea the Lordship of Christ, being humble, counting others more significant, but I want us to get more practical than that. I know those are nice, good, churchy, biblical things to say, but do you really believe them? And are you really practicing them? So what are those things that we can really attain and and wrap our hands around to get us to achieve and move forward in unity as the church? Let's move on to verse four. Paul again reiterates, repeats himself, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why is this a repetition? We got to go back to chapter three, verse one. It's there, he said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So again, Paul is saying that no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, and then we look at the context of what he had just addressed, that there's a disagreement in the church between these two women. He says, even in the disagreement and any any other outside hostility or whatever might be going on, that you're a a Christian church, a followers of Jesus Christ in a Roman province, you're going to find hostility, you're going to find some some disagreement uh, from, from those inside and outside the church, but yet rejoice in everything that we, we can do and who we are, we find joy. No matter what's going on, no matter how we're feeling in the moment, we can find joy because we're looking to the beyond. What did we talk about last week? Where's our citizenship? It's not here. We're citizens of heaven. And that needs to be our focus and what we're pursuing and what we're pursuing it for. You know, I came across something that a gentleman by the name of Gordon Fee said. He said, the truly godly person both longs for God's presence where one pours out his or her heart to God in joy, prayer, 
and thanksgiving and lives in God's presence by doing the righteousness of God. Otherwise, piety is mere religion, not devotion. So a lot of what Paul is going to speak to in, in these next few verses, Gordon Fee is kind of pointing out that we long to be in God's presence and we need to live in God's presence. And how do we do that? We do that through prayer, with thanksgiving, okay, in joy. So let's look, let's look at that as we continue on. So Paul says, rejoice always in everything. And then in verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Again, I'll say it again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What does it mean to be reasonable? In this case, it's gentleness. It's patience. And then he finishes the verse by saying, the Lord is at hand. So being gentle, being patient to everyone. That is a character quality we need to pick up on. We need to practice. It's not just something we say we should do. It is something we need to do. But it's, again, it's, the, it's, it's in context with the Christ-like humility that Paul referred to in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when Christ gave up his heavenly throne, not setting aside his deity, but he took on the form of man and taking the likeness of man, humbled himself because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so following the example of Christ, pursuing who he was as Lord, as God, he was gentle, he was patient, and he always will be with us. So Paul says the Lord is at hand. Why does he say that? Because 2,000 years ago, the Lord is at hand. 2020, the Lord is at hand. You know, what a lot of us are saying today, we're kind of got that feeling like, okay, the end of the world is here. <laughs> it's happening. But everything that is coming together is, is just... Uh, if, if God doesn't come back tomorrow, we'd be surprised with all the, the stuff and junk that's happening in the world. You know, we kind of get that feeling we're in the end times. But what Paul is saying, whether it's 2000 years ago or now, we need to live that way. You know, and I don't want it to become cliche, uh, but it is the truth that we need to live every day as if it's our last, as if Christ is coming any moment. Would that change our perspective of our character how we live in this world, how we're pursuing Christ-like character, gentleness, and, and whatever else in every aspect of our life, would that change our perspective? If we live with the intention that Christ could return at any moment, how are we living our life to pursue the gospel and to pursue and bring as many people with us to heaven as possible? It, it, that's something that's the next question I want to ask is, does that change or how does that change your perspective in the way that you're living your life? So verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Very popular verse. We, we've mentioned it quite a few times just in our gathering together as, as a church. But again, it's, it's another verse that we could say, it's easy to say another thing to live out. Do not be anxious about anything. So we're just, we're just talking about how the world is falling apart. And yet Paul says, don't be anxious about it. Don't worry about it. I know a lot of you are dealing with health issues and health concerns. Paul says, don't be anxious about it, but bring it before the Lord. And some of us are dealing with work issues. So whether it's a work issue or a health issue or financial issue or whatever it might be, what does Paul say? Do not be anxious 
You know, and Paul can say it over and over and over, but I think what we should do is maybe go back to the words of Jesus, right? The ultimate discipler, the ultimate encourager. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus gives an oration to this idea of not being anxious. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I want you to make a note of it so you can read it again just slowly and surely every day as we're witnessing life around us and, and, and going through our own against Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. I'm just going to pull out some snippets of it right now. What does Jesus say? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single day or hour to his span of life? O you of little faith, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many times within a short passage of scripture did Jesus say, do not be anxious? Are we listening? <laughs> if he didn't say it in this passage, he said it throughout multiple times in his teaching. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? But more than that, take it beyond that. Are you practicing not being anxious, not being, uh, putting pressure on yourself or worrying or, or whatever else? You know, again, easy to say, hard to practice, hard to live out on the daily basis, right? But again, another, something else in here I want to point out. He says prayers, but he also mentions supplications, and I just want to make that very clear what supplication is. It's basically a deeper request. It's almost likened to begging. You know, so have you ever begged God? L literally, have you begged him <laughs> as a child begs for something? <laughs> yeah, begging God because your requests are so deep rooted in your heart or in your mind that you just won't let go of what it is that you need or want God to answer. That's what a supplication is. So he says, bring God your prayers, communicate with him, speak to him, but also bring your requests. When the disciples asked, teach us how to pray, part of that prayer was, and give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus says, ask, ask me for things. But a supplication is ask deeply, yearn for it, beg for it, don't let go of it until it's answered. You know, so Jesus's own words, and then Paul is just repeating those words to the church at Philippi. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Now, very key point that we need to pull out now with what? Thanksgiving. This is not just a verse to read in November. Okay. Prayers and supplications with Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Why is it important to be thankful? I want you to stew on that for a little bit. If we do anything without thanksgiving, without being thankful, what is the mentality behind that? What is the mentality of an individual who is not grateful, who is not thankful? But I want to ask now, if, if, if in Jesus's words and in Paul's words, telling us what we should not do, do not be anxious. The question I pose to you now is, what do you do then in the moment when you start to feel anxious? What do you do? Because this is practical. This is not just philosophy 101, right? This is practical stuff that we need to actually practice and do. So what do you do in the moment when you are feeling anxious? Yes, Paul said pray, but there's something else 
that aligns with what Paul's going to talk about that I think is very important for us to pull out. So I want you to think about that as well. What do you do the moment you start to feel worry, fear, anxiety, pressure? You fill in the blank. So let me, let me give you again the overarching Bible answer. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. This is what you do. Here's the practicality of this. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, we're human, so we're still going to feel anxiety. We're still going to fear. We're still going to have worry at times. So what do we do? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you take your thought captive? That's practical. How do you take your thoughts captive? Well, the reality is you, you, you wrap your hands around it. You take that bad thought. You take that thought that the enemy is implanted in your head, that worry, that fear, that pressure, whatever it else, that anxiety, and you grip tight and you choke it out. There is, there is some practicality in how we do that. But we take our thoughts captive because you've heard me say before, if you do not take your thought captive, the thoughts go down to your heart. And when it sits in the heart, that's where it breeds action. So if we don't take it captive here and it gets to our heart, it's going to cause us to react or do something from a place we shouldn't do it in. Does that make sense? And so we take it captive. Here's something else I came across from... Uh, an old theologian from the 1600s. His name is Francois Fenelon. I'm probably saying it wrong because he's French, but his name is Francois Fenelon. And this is what he says about this concept of prayer and supplications and taking our thoughts captive. He said, tell God all that is in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures, its pains to a dear friend, tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others. How vanity tempts you to be insincere. How pride disguises you to yourself and to others. The quote goes on. But do you get the idea? Do you see the practicality in what we are to do with our thoughts, our fears, our worries, our pressure? That is prayer. It's not the, the memorized, uh, rote, uh, repetitive prayer we pray before a meal or our bedtime or whatever else. There's some sincerity in this, whatever it might be. You see, do you hear the deep groaning of what Francois was, was talking about? We give the Lord everything. That supplication, that deeper request, you put it before God. And in that, you will have peace. And that's what Paul moves on to talk about. When we can grab a hold of that, when we can put that into practice, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we're seeking to truly know the Lord, then we will come to an understanding at some point that when we unload our anxieties onto him, he will not reject us. There isn't anything that you can bring before the Lord that is going to cause him to reject you or walk away from you because he doesn't want to handle your baggage. 
We need to understand that. And I think we have a problem with that because we've been hurt by people. We've been hurt by friends. We've been hurt by family members. We've been hurt by other people that we thought we could trust or, or give something to, give information to, deep-rooted stuff, and they hurt us with it because they went off and told other people or, or whatever the case might be or they just lost interest because you unloaded baggage and they didn't want to handle it. <laughs> so they decided to drop it and run. But God's not going to do that. And if you fully understand who God is, he's not going to reject you. He's not going to hurt you. He says, give me that load. Give me that baggage. Give me all of that. Because when you can do that, does it, does, is God promising us that you will have instantaneous peace? Everybody do this. No, it's not a promise of instantaneous peace. If you've lived long enough, you understand just because you pray, you don't have absolute immediate peace. That's not the way it works. But again, it's like the difference between happiness and joy that we spoke of two or three weeks ago. The peace that we can have that God will give us that'll guard our heart is a deeper rooted sense of peace that goes beyond the immediate circumstance. Because of who he is and because we've been able to hand something over to him, we can have the peace of knowing that God understands, that God will take that and God will answer that request in his time, in his will, in his way. That should give us a sense of peace. It may not be immediate, but it is there. So another question. <laughs> As Paul says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Again, if it's beyond our understanding, we're not going to even dive into that. Why we can't understand. It's just beyond us. Let's just get over it. <laughs> but that peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the question is, what does the peace of God guard us from? If the peace is not instantaneous, then the peace of God that we should feel or have a sense of after we've given to him our requests and our supplications and our prayers, what does that peace guard us from? Again, the, the easy, quick answer is further anxiety, self-reliance to navigate this world in our own power, fear, pressure, the list goes on. And so that's the immediate. But again, what do we have to do in that moment if he's going to guard our hearts? Do we just drop our hands? Do we just give up? And do we just, is it that let go, let God mentality? Or is there something else that we do practically to move forward in faith with that peace of God driving us on? Here's the, the picture that God gave me. Maybe for those of you that are parents that have real young ones, if you ever lifted up your child onto your shoulders, you know the sense of fear that your child has in that moment because he feels like he's being lifted up like four stories into the air, right? There's a tremendous amount of fear in that. But the moment that that child is on your shoulders, now, if you are the, the, the type of dad that would just grab onto their, their ankles or their feet to keep them secure, there's, what they're going to do is they're just going to wrap their hands around your, your face and, or your neck and they're just going to grip tight, right? Because they're sensing a little bit of that fear. But what I found out when I would do that with my kids, in fact, I've got a picture of, of Caleb on my shoulders when he was a real young, young kid, but I've got his, his feet are right here on my shoulders and I've got his hands right here. And the moment I took his hands, there was a release in his 
body in his in his in his grip because he felt hey my dad's got me my dad's not gonna let me go you know so even though it's scary there was a smile on his face because that's what the peace of god that will guard us is like because he takes us under his wing and he holds on to us and even though there's this sense of insecurity a little bit of fear still we're in the arms of our father and he's not letting us go let's look at the last couple of verses really quick to bring this to a close verse 8 paul said finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things so here we are talking about this very important concept of taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, grabbing a hold of them. And then what does he go on to say? Think about the good things. You know, so if we take a quick look at each of these, again, what is true? Anything that's valid, anything that's reliable, what is honorable, anything worthy of respect, what is just, anything that's right or upright, what about pure, anything that's moral purity what's anything that's lovely anything that's agreeable anything that's pleasing what about commendable anything that's praiseworthy because of its high standards so again if you look at all of these words that paul is saying that we need to think about every single one is a characteristic of jesus christ isn't it every single one of them christ is true christ is honorable christ is just pure lovely commendable what is he telling us to do think about him think about all these things but not just that don't just think about it this is we need to think on these things but then he goes on to say we need to live these things so all these high standards of character according to the example of jesus and the word of god we need to think about but so we've got to separate the world's view of morality and good and replace it with the things of god you know i came across this study a while ago quite a few years ago now too in this phrase that really made me think through this idea of how do we separate biblical morality from secular morality? You know, because a lot of people are saying what's good is good, right? It doesn't matter if it's good, it's good. If it's good by your definition, then it's good. So live it, you know, morality, same thing, love, same thing. So it was a phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. How does that grab you? <laughs> I'll say it again, moralistic therapeutic deism so what is that phrase saying and this is what is permeating our youth it's what's permeating society even today moralistic is whatever you believe to be moral by your definition now if you take the phrase therapeutic whatever makes you feel good whatever makes you feel good about what you believe to be good that's your deism that's your god so does that make sense as to kind of why this is permeating our, the youth of society and, and what we're seeing going on in the world today? Whatever I believe to be right, whatever makes me feel good, that's what I'm going to do because that's my God. So it's a self-serving mentality by my own definition. And I'm going to redefine and recreate all the definitions of what's moral and pure and good. And I'm going to go after it. That's what we're seeing happen today. That's what I see all the time in the schools. When I walk on campus and as a part of Student Venture Club and I'm talking to these high school kids or, or middle school kids that are living life in the world and, and saturated with it, 
their definition of what is good and what is true and what is lovely and what is pure, it's so skewed. It's been defined and redefined and mixed up according to what the world says in that moment because tomorrow or the next day or the next week or next school year, it's going to be completely different because we're constantly redefining what these terms are. And so what Paul says is we need to think on the things that are actually true and lovely and good, which is the characteristics of Jesus Christ, God himself, the truth of scripture and stand on that and let that guide our thinking. But then he closes out in verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So what does he close with? Don't just think about things. Don't be a philosopher only. We need to think about these things. We need to think about these things often every day. Like we were talking about last week, we need to take in the wisdom of God. We need to pursue purity and, and, and unity and humility in our life. But now he says, we need to practice these things. We need to live them out. And he's given himself as an example. He gave Jesus Christ as an example earlier in this letter. So what you think about, if in proper context with Christ, then do it. Then live it out. That's a hard-hitting note for all of us today, especially the church. Dwight Pentecost said, Maturity in the Christian life is not measured by what a man knows, but by what a man does. So to prove our maturity, to prove our pursuit of righteousness, to prove the things that are true and lovely and good and commendable and right according to God's standards, we need to live those out and we need to do them in life and practice them. That's why tonight has been all about practicality, thinking about these things, but then how can I make them a visual representation of my faith in Jesus Christ? And that is what it comes down to. So if you caught it, five things. I want, I want you to take these five notes down really quick because you can go back and kind of reread how all these five things came to the surface in these nine verses. One, rejoice always. One is rejoice always. Number two, show patience or forbearance, gentleness to all people. So one, rejoice always. Two, show patience. Three, pray always. In every circumstance, pray always. Number four, think on the things of God. Though that list we just listed in verse eight. And then five, get to work. <laughs> Practice them. All right, so again, rejoice always. Show patience to all people. Pray always. Think on the things of God and then practice them. Those are the five things that really came out in this passage of scripture.